everyone. Thank you so much for coming. I'm super excited to be here. Um, so my name is Mithu Kandeka, and I'm a game designer and developer. Um, and before I uh, delve too much into my work and the things I do, I just want to take a moment to speak to the question that a lot of people have asked throughout my career when they find out what I do, which is, how did you decide to get into game design? Um, and luckily, I don't get that question too often these days. Um, more thankfully, when I do, and it comes from usually, usually it comes from people who still regard uh, video games with suspicion rather than sort of seeing it as the very normalized activity uh, that everyone does across all age groups and across an even gender divide. Um, but really, the answer is as simple as this. Um, I've been fascinated with video games since I was really young, ever since I had those stolen moments of playing on my uncle's Commodore 64, usually something like Paperboy, etc. And as soon as I figured out that making video games is a job that people actually do for a living, I was like, yeah, I want to do that. Um, so I played all kinds of games growing up, all kinds of platforms, all kinds of genres, etc., etc. But when I was 15 or 16, there was a game that was released that I became absolutely obsessed with, EverQuest. Some of you may be familiar with it. Um, if you're not familiar with it, EverQuest was special. Um, it was a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. Um, it was the first commercially successful 3D game of its kind. Um, and what that meant was it was this big, pervasive world filled with tons and tons of real people. And having never played anything of the sort before, I kind of didn't know what to expect, right? So I could expect anything, basically. There was something that was really magical about it because I didn't really know where the boundaries were. Now, I want to reiterate, this is an old game, right? So this was pretty much 19 years ago. And the first time I played, I walked into a new area, and I noticed uh, someone calling me over, addressing my character, uh, which was a human enchanter at the time, if you're interested, um, addressing my character by name. And at first, so I went over, and at first I thought it was another player, but immediately it became obvious that actually, no, it was uh, just a non-player character or NPC, specifically one who was there to sell me things, right? So sell items in the game, etc. The interesting thing about this particular interaction and interaction with NPCs in this game, though, is that it was via natural language, or at least some semblance of it. So when an NPC talked to you, it looked a little something like this. Uh, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here. So it said something like, Hail Kyria, which was the name of my first main in EverQuest, uh, care to hear about my weapons. And the first time you play, you're all enthusiastic, and you say something like, oh, yeah, tell me more about these weapons. But the next time you happen across the NPC, you might say, you just type something like, what weapons? Because they're kind of signposting there, right, what the relevant keyword is. Um, and then eventually, you wonder why you can't just type weapons. So while at the beginning, you might buy into the illusion that you, what you're doing is having an actual conversation with this character, once you actually figure out how things work, that illusion is kind of shattered, right? Um, it's just looking for uh, a couple of keywords. So our mental model for that interaction shifts from feeling like you're in this conversation, that you're actually being listened to, to something which feels a little bit more like just typing into a search engine. And that's a model which still kinds of exists, right? So 
instead of uh, treating conversational AI as conversational, we'll often just basically order it around like, we, like we're typing things into a search engine. Uh, so, hey Siri, weather. It's currently partly cloudy and 23 degrees in Amsterdam. Okay, yeah. All right, we'll put that down. Um, so, Siri doesn't care if we're being, uh, if we're sort of talking in a complete sentence, if we're being uh, polite or not. Um, so anyway, just to backtrack. So as well as being a game designer and developer, I'm also, um, I was also on the founding team of a company called Spirit AI, where we make tools which help you make uh, rich, dynamic, conversational characters for video games or chatbots or beyond. We also make tools to help combat online harassment in social platforms and games as well. So ultimately, as a company um, at Spirit, we're all about figuring out the context of interactions and really understanding users and their language, right? Whether that's understanding them when they're talking to a conversational AI character or when they're talking to each other, right? When players in a game, for example, are talking to each other and trying to understand that very nuanced use of language, trying to glean from context if it's problematic or positive or otherwise. Uh, personally, also, I consult on a variety of creative and technical projects across games, AI, and immersive storytelling, and I'm also a professor at NYU in the game design department. So I teach game design skills, uh, both digital and non-digital, um, and in general, my work, uh, a lot of my work and expertise is framed around how to design for compelling emotional and cognitive involvement with simulated characters. So I look at this with regards to all parts of this question, right? So from conversational agents to how we respond to non-player characters in increasingly technologically uh, immersive environments. But today, specifically, I want to delve into this question, which is why I think conversational AI needs storytellers and game designers to, and really you as well. Um, now, why am I framing the question in this way? Well, let's start with the part about conversational AI. So I'm framing this talk around conversational AI because this sets it kind of in the here and now, right? Um, and it might be around some of the questions that you're potentially interested in, around virtual agents that we can talk to, the series, the Alexas, et cetera, of the world. But equally, we can also think about the far future of conversational AI, the aspirational ideal of artificial general intelligence, perhaps, uh, whether that's kind of a walking, talking, uh, fully realized digital being, trying to fully mimic a human, for instance, and able to think for itself. But I do want to give you a spoiler about one of the things that um, I believe and that I'll talk about, which is that those things aren't necessarily part of the same spectrum, right? Though they can be. I think that we can talk about having the goal of crafting these rich, satisfying, conversational uh, characters and conversational ability in AI without also having the goal of trying to fool the user into thinking that they're talking to a human. Those are totally separate things. And now, with regards to who needs to be involved in this, this crafting conversational AI or bringing about the ideal of human-like characters, I feel like we value disciplines like engineering, machine learning, and they're all obviously good and valuable, and I come from a background of engineering too, 
But I contend that actually we need to frame trying to solve the future of AI as a design problem. And remember that machine learning is math and not magic. So all of the proliferation of virtual assistants, chatbots, and all the excitement around the future of AI marks the disappearance of interfaces into our everyday lives, right? So we want things to be as naturalistic as possible. We want few, fewer specific literacies that people need when they interact with our products or whatever it is. And so as part of that, we're moving towards representing our machines as conversational, whether that's human-like or not. And initially, when we're faced with a system whose limits we're not acutely aware of, we're willing to make allowances for it, right? We have this inclination to personify it. This type of buy-in that we have is known as the Eliza effect, which you might have heard of. Um, it's named after Eliza, which was, of course, the first chatbot, which you're probably familiar with. Um, so Eliza was, of course, a simulated therapist. Um, but you may not know that she was actually created as kind of a joke or a sort of uh, critique. Um, and to the surprise and annoyance of its creator, Joseph Weizenbaum, um, he found that people were actually being confessional with Eliza, right? They were actually taking her seriously and treating her like a real person. So he noted, this is a quote from Weizenbaum, he noted that computers can induce this uh, powerful delusional thinking in quite normal people, which is this observation that I love. Um, and yet on the other end of the spectrum, those who interacted with Eliza would actually fall into two possible categories, right? So there's the people who really bought in and really treated her like a real person. And then there's, on the other end of the spectrum, people who specifically tried to break her, right, to find her edges. Um, and there's no surprise, perhaps, that gamers, uh, people who play a lot of video games, uh, tend to fall into that category. So that brings us to our first insight from game design. When we feel like a conversational AI isn't really understanding us or is just responding to us on a very superficial level, such as just picking up on keywords, we have less of a sense of what we call agency. Now, in the common parlance, agency, we use agency to mean we have control over a situation, right? So we have agency over something. Um, but there's a more specific game design definition, which I quite like and is my go-to definition, which is one that was defined in a really good paper from an academic game conference called DIGRA in 2009, where they specifically define agency as being when uh, the actions that players desire are among the, those they can take as supported by an underlying computational model. So our job as designers, whether we're game designers or UX designers, or anyone who builds or creates systems for people to interact with, is to communicate that underlying computational model. One really easy way to communicate an underlying computational model is to provide a one-to-one -one mapping with something that we already know how to do in real life. So one really good example is racing games, right, or driving games. So driving is probably one of the most relatable things that we can do in a video game because most of us know how to drive. Like, even if we don't have our license, we have some idea of uh, how a car works, right? So this means that uh, when we play racing games, like we expect to be able to do certain things. We expect to be able to accelerate, to turn, to brake, et cetera, et cetera. And that applies even if we're using like a classic controller. That's not even getting into using like plastic steering peripherals, et cetera. And in theory, this is how conversational AI should work too. One thing that we all kind of have 
some idea of as people is how to engage in conversations with other human beings, right? And of course, not everybody's ideas of that are always the same or as well thought out as others, but nevertheless, we all have some kind of mental model of how, what it is to interact with other people. We're kind of effectively social beings. So this is something that we can leverage to ensure that our expectations for conversation uh, that we are bringing in from the real world are being met. I contend that users who found Eliza particularly convincing and brought in, brought into sort of uh, interacting with her and treating her like a real therapist did so because actually of the fictional framing that was provided around her being a therapist, right? And that fictional framing was actually supported by the underlying computational model of Eliza. So what she, what, uh, she would do is ask questions like this, she would repeat back to you things that you'd already said, which is actually how that particular model of therapy works, right? The thing about buying into the fictional framing of an AI agent is important. So as I said earlier, even when we're aspiring towards crafting rich conversational ability in AI, that's not necessarily uh, the same as trying to fool a user into thinking that they're talking to a real human. As users, as people, we're capable of more nuanced thought than that. It's okay to aspire to design our conversational agents into being satisfying um, the same way that we would try to solve any other kind of design problem. So the user can have a kind of willing suspension of disbelief um, underscored by knowing that what they're doing is interacting with an AI. In many ways, we can think of conversational AI as kind of fictional entities. And so our engagement with them is a kind of fiction as well. And that's something that actually we can bring in from, again, storytelling, from game design. The idea of the magic circle is one that exists in game design, right? So when we're playing, we're buying into the rules of a game. We're sort of suspending the outside world and we're saying, yes, this is the thing I'm doing. I'm accepting the fictional boundaries of this thing, uh, of this thing that I'm in. And we do that because keeping up that pretense is actually more compelling for us than not doing it, right? Like, you're no fun if you're like, no, this isn't really a dragon, like, I refuse to believe that. It's actually just more compelling to buy into the fiction. Just as a side note, by the way, um, this is kind of one of the reasons why the Turing test kind of needs to stop being in public consciousness, right? As uh, the thing that defines the success or otherwise of an AI agent. Uh, there's lots of reasons for that. Um, now, I won't explain, obviously, what the Turing test is. I'm sure you're very, very familiar with it. But one thing that perhaps not everyone might know about the Turing test is um, it actually comes from an interesting and problematic background. So it was devised, of course, by Alan Turing. Um, and he was inspired by a Victorian parlor game which existed in which um, a man and a woman would sit in seclusion uh, in a separate room and answer questions on paper. And then the other player or players, so the evaluator in this case, would try to uh, guess the gender of the two people. As described by Turing, the two players are, trying, are each trying to get the evaluator to guess which one of them is the woman. Uh, so the man wins if he is more convincingly uh, sort of simulating a woman through writing than the person who is the woman, and the woman wins if she is correctly guessed as the woman. So we have to remember that this is from a time of more rigid gender roles, but still it uh, comes from this strange, heavily gendered background. And as Jaron Lanier wrote, um, 
it's impossible for us to know that what role the torture that Turing was enduring at the time played in his formulation of the test. But it's undeniable that one of the key figures in the defeat of fascism was destroyed after the war because he was gay. No wonder his imagination pondered the rights of strange creatures. So going back, though, to our ideas of how conversations work and what expectations we have for rich, dynamic conversational systems, when we talk to each other person to person, in addition to just kind of the facts we're conveying to each other, we, you know, so we're not listening out for just keywords, right, when we're communicating. There's actually all kinds of channels of communication that are happening. So conversations are about so much more than just like the content which is why we don't, generally speaking, just grunt commands at each other. And if we did grunt commands at each other, that kind of tells us something about us as people, right? We're probably someone who's quite rude. Uh, because in addition to content, conversations also convey our social stance towards the person we're speaking to. Uh, so are we being rude? Are we being polite? Uh, are we nervous? Are we umming and ahhing? Are we is there, is there something about our overall personality that's being conveyed? Are we stern and serious? Are we playful? And that's just something that we might glean from a single interaction or over the course of the whole interaction or even a set of interactions. And it informs our opinion of who we're talking to. Also, moment to moment over, and over the course of a conversation, we have lots of agendas at play, right? And that's not to use the word agenda in the political sense per se, but in terms of what are the goals driving us in a particular situation. If we're on a date, we want to get to know the person we're talking to. If we're at a job interview, we want to impress someone. And if we're consoling a friend through a crisis, we want to be comforting to them, right? And maybe our agenda is to cheer them up and make them feel relaxed. And that's not even to speak of the moment-to-moment -moment micro goals that we form just throughout the course of a single interaction. So we all live within our own personal narratives, and there's a sense of story to our lives at any given point, within a certain space, within a certain context. As well as giving them conversational ability, we also need to give our AI stories. This is why it's not enough to expect our AI to sort of exist unstuck from time and space, kind of like Alexa or Siri, um, and devoid of context. We're, if we do that, we're not really motivated to humanize them. To be convincing, to be compelling to interact with, they need to live within a story, within a certain narrative context. And that context is something that we design. So what about actually building conversational AI? How can we bring in some of these ideas? Um, so this is a link to an article that was posted on uh, Chatbot's Life. And what this does is just kind of group the different approaches that exist to building chatbots. So we can see at the, um, at the bottom here, these uh, bottom two, there's rule-based, there's uh, smart machines, um, generative-based. Um, and so these are the two we're interested in. The top one in the, on the top right there is sort of solving the challenge of, uh, of general intelligence. So we'll ignore that one for now. So one is generative, and what that means is that allows for richer conversations, because that's bringing in room for bringing in context, right? Recognizing context, it's not just picking, uh, picking a response from a set of possible responses. So, that's probably the kind of chatbot that we're interested in, but that latter category also requires massive amounts of training, of technical ability. Um, and we need to, that's not even to mention the skill required to tune uh, that output so that it feels natural, so it feels like compelling conversation. 
So at Spirit AI, we have uh, two goals when it comes to our character engine system. We wanted to make it way easier than that to be able to craft these autonomous uh, characters. And what we wanted to also do was make sure that, they can, that users can do that through a system which produces really rich, really, uh, really compelling output, right? So Character Engine is an authoring tool in an SDK with integrations for Unity or Unreal or for your own system. So through this authoring tool, writers are able to create characters who are able to autonomously respond to players, whether that's in a fully-fledged VR environment or whether it's just through uh, like a web interface. And they can respond to gestures, they can respond to all kinds of, all of those channels of information that we were talking about. And so characters have a memory of where a conversation has gone so far. They know what they want to say uh, from their particular possible narrative space that they exist in. And they can draw dynamically from those. So they can improvise within the narrative space that has been defined for, for them. So they actually have two sources of information. So one is their sort of narrative space, and the other is um, sort of a knowledge model-driven space. So they can draw from a structured database and generate sentences based on just facts that they know. Uh, so that's really helpful if you're doing things like pulling in structured information like weather data, and you can have your characters talk about that. Um, so that's useful uh, to, if you want to produce like a helpful virtual assistant for some kind of outdoor venue. So Character Engine can drive characters in all kinds of situations. Um, very quickly, here's an in-house demo uh, that I'll just leave playing uh, without the audio on. Um, this was actually made by the Spirit AI team earlier this year. And this is kind of showing through this Westworld-like interface the sort of moment-to-moment -moment decisions that a character is making about what to sort of say next, right? And so they have, uh, they have to communicate the social context that's going on right now um, as they're speaking, the sort of information that they need to convey, Etc. So all of this is because you want the feeling that as the player you have agency, right? That the character is really responding to you and understands you. There are all kinds of other scenarios too where Character Engine can and has been used. This is a short snippet of a video from one of our partners, Deutsche Telekom, where they uh, won a Innovation Jam competition at Airbus where they created this AR character uh, who was driven using Character Engine. Um, and also, uh, it doesn't just have to apply to sort of 3D avatars. You can make all kinds of things. Like here's a 2D uh, AR character, and this is for a screenshot from um, a game that I worked on a few years ago, which I'm now updating to use Character Engine, so you can sort of speak to the, this sort of simulated space station full of characters in natural language. So again, to reiterate, there's all kinds of contexts where Character Engine can be used. If we go back to this idea of agency, we want the user's mental model of conversation to be supported. But we also want to teach them how to interact with the system. So that's why that rich conversational ability is important. When we're supporting the underlying mental model uh, that people have of conversations, these interfaces become fun, and they become satisfying to interact with. And we kind of avoid this situation, right? Uh, conversational agents, which are the equivalent of a Google search. And that's especially important because this brings me back to today's conversational agents, right? It's not a new topic of conversation, and lots of people have made the observation that lots of these uh, agents are by default gendered female. 
And that's a problem when we're treating them like Google Search, because as, uh, as Ian Bogos said in an article in the, in the Atlantic a few months ago, at no point would you be tempted to call Google Search a bitch for failing to serve up the right knowledge at whim. Um, so there's lots of interest in that topic of conversational agents which do or do not respond to abuse. It's hard not to see a parallel between the sort of gendered history of like the Turing test, for instance, and some of what's going on here. But hopefully we've reached a point where we do realize that pushing back against, uh, against abuse is actually really important. And it's no accident that a separate but related problem we work on at Spirit AI, as I mentioned, is one about uh, trying to respond to harassment and trying to recognize abuse and all the sort of nuanced ways in which it exists. Um, so if you think about an online conversation, whether it's within a game or otherwise, if my best friend calls me a name, I might be okay with it because I know her, but I wouldn't be okay with that same insult coming from a total stranger. So again, language is really difficult and conversation is very nuanced. So understanding abuse is important, both between real people and simulated people. And uh, so at Spirit, the R&D we do kind of applies across both products. So I actually think that the exercise itself of designing conversational AI characters is one that engenders a kind of empathy, right? And this is why we need you and everybody to create characters which um, represent the diverse perspectives that exist. Um, so I'll skip that slide. I, this is why I think that AI bot authoring literacy is actually the next important digital literacy for our age, right? So everybody being able to create conversational agents is super, super important. Um, so this is why conversational AI needs storytellers and game designers and you. Thank you very much.